Hey everyone, this is your friend Bully, and you're listening to Bully Esquire. In this podcast, we chat with the movers and shakers from the worlds of finance, tech, crypto, politics, law, and media, and everything in between. Thanks for joining. Let's dive in. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing crypto media company. Blockworks has 20 crypto and finance podcasts, and I'm excited to be part of the network. Visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you won't be disappointed. Today's episode is sponsored by Femix, Radix, and RSK. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Today we have Scott Melker, super pumped. Um, I've been on his podcast and now I called in the favor and <laughs> he's in the other chair. So Scott, how are you doing? Doing great. The check is in the mail. I <laughs> hope that uh, for all this exposure, thank you. Right. No, everything right. is good, man. Everything is good. Good, man. Good. Well, I'm happy to hear it. Thanks for joining me. Um, last time we spoke, I droned on about all the stuff I'm working on. So <laughs> I'm going to grill you this time. I'm really hoping to get some sort of juicy stories from your old DJ heydays. I've done a really good job of keeping it under wraps because my mom and dad listen to everything, but I think that we could probably share a few things that uh, might get me only in a little trouble now as a 44 year old man, you know, I think I should be able to share it all by now, but. And feel free to, you know, tweak the details to protect. Sure. <laughs> the sure. Innocent, so to speak. Um, but yeah, no, I, you know, I always sort of ask people kind of how they, I, I just find like personal stories really interesting. So I'm just curious, like, where are you from? How'd you get in the kind of the DJ scene and then how that led you to the crypto scene? I know that's probably a 20 minute answer, but um, if you just want to like let my listeners sort of get a get an idea of your background, I think that would be helpful. Sure, I can give the revised version for sure. So I grew up in Gainesville, Florida, which is a small town, but my parents are city people. You know, they're like they're from Brooklyn. My dad grew up on Miami Beach, but it's just where we landed because my dad was a doctor. So it was interesting because it's a really small town and super country, but we were a Jewish family from like New York city that's landed here in the 1970s. So like, you know, even though my surroundings were kind of uh, small townish, I think my parents still always had, you know, that big city sort of vibe and they were very cultured and, and taught us to, to be such. So it was always a lot of music, a lot of learning, a lot of those things. And part of that was sort of financial education, you know? And so I started buying stocks when I was a teenager, which is sort of how I got into markets, you know, like bar mitzvah, literally mm -hmm. Disney stock and, and, and Apple and Caterpillar. Um, but, you know, at the center of everything for me, it was always music. My, my parents say that I used to like rock back and forth in the crib and try to sing and dance when I was too young to even talk or, <laughs> uh, or stand up. And I started playing the piano when I was, you know, four and a half years old and something that I took very seriously as a kid. I was like a competitive classical pianist. I learned to play the saxophone. I started singing all this stuff, you know, and it kind of culminated in college to DJing because all that stuff was super lame and DJing was cool. Right. Um, so, you know, my friend like came home from abroad in Italy, there's the university of Pennsylvania and he had turntables, but he was terrible and gave up. So I basically just like bought his turntables at like a 90% discount and the 12 records that he had. And I started learning to DJ, you know, and it sort of, uh, started at house parties and fraternity parties. And then all of a sudden I was kind of DJing a few things downtown in Philadelphia and then to New York. And it sort of uh, grew from there, you know, and uh, one thing DJs have is a lot of spare time. 
Um, so I was always able to sort of track markets and keep up. And that's what my friends were into, you know, from college, like, uh, going to Penn in the late nineties in 1999, when I graduated, it was getting a job on wall street was about as hard as getting Halloween candy from a neighbor, you know? Um, and so that's kind of the route that everyone went. We did have a few guys become scummy lawyers like you. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to sorry. hear that. Sorry. Um, but you know, pretty much everyone went into finance. So, sure. uh, you know, that that's kind of like the very quick backstory. I think I was always, I always felt like Gainesville was really small and I had to escape. And so I got to Philadelphia and I kind of lit a match and burnt every bridge and then, uh, landed right back here four years ago after being gone for like 25 years. And now I'm, uh, you know, repairing bridges. Sure. Fun. Yeah. Your, your parents had it all figured out. They were like 40 years ahead of the curve. They moved to, you know, Southern California or Southern Florida. And now it's like everyone and their brothers moving to Southern Florida. Well, the taxes are great. Um, the COVID is not, <laughs> right. um, it's actually my County where the university of Florida is, is one of the worst in the entire country and has been for the entire time. Like we've never even had a break. So, you know, it's kind <laughs> of a, it's an interesting place and interesting, uh, you know, to be, but, uh, yeah, we, we like it here and we're close to family and it's nice. I just never, ever in a million years thought I would land back here after Philadelphia, New York and Miami, you know, yeah. for over two decades. Yeah, no, Florida's Florida's a really cool place. I know it gets a lot of shit, deservedly so in a lot of ways, but it is a sort of a really unique kind of melting pot of different cultures. The food's awesome. The weather's great. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's a cool state. So I, Dude, I don't blame you. Florida is awesome. And the Florida man thing actually has a root cause that's not as sinister as it seems which is that Florida has very free uh, information laws. And so like when someone gets arrested in Florida, unlike almost any other state in the United States, that information is public and available to everyone the minute it happens. So all the crazy Florida man stuff hits the press immediately and all of those records are locked in other states. So all this crazy things that Floridians do is happening everywhere. It's just that like, we are very, you know, liberal in our freedom of information. So you see it immediately. And of course, it's like this compounding snowball of virality that once Florida man caught on now, everyone thinks we're all lunatics. Sure. Yeah. America's Australia, right? Basically. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, one thing I was bugging you about before, um, we started was we want to hear some some DJing stories. So I know I, I remember you posted a few weeks ago like a picture of Kim Kardashian and I it think was her you, butt. Oh, it was well. her butt that I posted a picture of because I wasn't bold enough to get a picture of her face. Well, that's her um, most famous feature, really. I mean, it's, well, it, I guess, it, it effectively is her face. <laughs> it effectively it is effectively her face. You know, she's one of those rare people who it's the same thing if you take a picture of it. But yeah, that was a I I used to DJ uh, for Vogue magazine. This they have a huge fashion designer award show called the CFDA Awards every single year, and I was fortunate to be the DJ for it. So it was always like a really big sort of celebrity event. I mean, I was irrelevant. I was like kind of the dude in the corner you know, playing background music while they all did whatever celebrities and, and famous people do, but it, it made for some really, really good eye candy and, and people watching, um, which is kind of what DJing is at the end of the day, I think. Mm -hmm. So were, were you like flying around doing a bunch of different shows and gigs or was it mainly like you were resident somewhere or how was it, like the professional it, stuff? 
it evolved. So, you know, like I said, it started fraternity parties to downtown Philly to dive bars in the East Village in New York City. And then, you know, I started to get sort of more of a profile, I guess, and started to do these celebrity events, which started to get me traveling. But my biggest break, I guess, was uh, in 2006, I auditioned to be the DJ in the band of a very famous Japanese singer named Toshinobu Kubota. It was his 20th anniversary tour. They call him the Michael Jackson or Stevie Wonder of Japan. Hmm. And I just hit it off with the drummer and I, I got the job, you know? And so I went on this stadium tour of Japan for basically six months in 2006. Um, and so I would open the show and then I was the drummer, like a percussionist, not the drummer, percussionist and DJ for the entirety of the show. So I was like in his band and it was kind of this high profile, insane thing. I mean, we were literally playing like soccer stadiums, you know? Um, and so it was kind of fun. And then I came back and I sort of had that on my resume. And then I went from DJing and started really producing a lot more. And that's when I was able to sort of leverage it into a lot of traveling and kind of was doing a ton of college shows. I was like the tiny little name on the flyer at festivals with the big names. You know, I never got that like A-list uh, level of fame, certainly as a headliner myself, but it got me to a position where I was playing with a lot of artists and have a lot of crazy stories, you know, obviously about celebrities and things like that from, from doing that and musicians. Sure. Were you playing like Lollapalooza and uh, like Bonnaroo and shit like that? So I, I'd never played Lollapalooza or Bonnaroo. I did an after party for Lollapalooza one time. I don't know if that counts, but I did like uh, Camp Bisco, which was oh, another sure. big festival up in, uh, in like Hudson, uh, New York, and quite a few of the festivals in Miami, honestly, I can't even remember the name of half of them. Mm-hmm. And then tons and tons of like the spring fling shows on college campuses where it would be like me as the undercard to some big rapper or some big show like that or something. And I, I also was like the backing DJ for people. Like, I, I, you know, I was the DJ for Raekwon from Wu-Tang mm-hmm. uh, for a while, which is a really crazy story of how I met him, which I've never shared, which is probably a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it, man. If you're willing to share it, I'd love to. I mean, everyone sure, loves absolutely, Wu-Tang. Absolutely. So I was, it was probably 2002, um, and I was actually 2004 and I was working for a company called Frank 151. I was DJing on the side, but I had like a, a real job and, uh, my, my boss at the time and I, uh, had to go on a trip to England and then to, to Amsterdam for, for business. And so we're in the airport on the way from New York. And apparently my boss at the time knew Raekwon's manager and they happened to be on our flight. So we land in Amsterdam and he's like, oh, damn, our DJ missed the flight. He's not going to make it by the show for the show. And my manager, uh, my, not my manager, my, my boss at the time, Chris goes, well, he's a DJ. <laughs> Listen, this was like, I was not a big DJ. I was just like a bar DJ, you know, sure. it was like, oh, he can do it, whatever. So it was this huge festival in Eindhoven, Amsterdam. So he's like, all right, cool, man. He's like, you're the DJ. Like, okay. But like, this was before all the technology and stuff, they handed me a stack of records. Oh boy. Like some of them had like six songs on one side. Like I, you know, like I didn't know what I was going to play and whatever. So we get to the hotel. He's like, all right, we're going to go through the set. So I'm in the hotel. It's a holiday Inn in Eindhoven. And uh, Raekwon goes, you know, man, they, you know, he's talking in his Staten Island. Yo, son, you know what I'm saying, son? Like, yo, son, they don't even have blunts here, son. Like, it's a problem, son. And he said, son, like 97 times. And I was like, well, you know, I went to college. I can roll a joint, you know. And But so he hands me like a bag of weed. Like, must have been 
a quarter of an ounce or something. And he's like, put the whole thing in. So I get like 10 rolling papers and I'm like linking logs and, you know, doing all <laughs> kinds of like crazy stuff. And I roll this thing that's like, you know, straight out of like a Cheech and Chong movie. I hand it to him. I'm like, here you go. He's like, nah, we doing this, son. Like the whole thing, son. And I'm like, all right. So we do. And he's in the bathroom of the Holiday Inn, like 20 minutes later, like screaming at himself. Like, I don't know, like really, really blazed, right? And I'm like kind of over in the corner in a bit of paranoia and like, what's going to happen? This show is in like two hours and I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're just going to throw me out on stage. So they hand me this like stack of records and we walk out and I'm like, I, I mean, I'm, I, I was pretty wasted, you know? And so I, I blew it. Like, I don't know if I blew it. I don't even really remember. I just know that like I was playing the wrong songs. <laughs> And like, I like you, they were like, yo, play Cream, you know, like one of the most famous songs. And mm -hmm. I, I just had a stack of records. So I was like going one to the next one. I like would play, I'd put the song on, but they'd be like, yo, yo, that's not my verse. Oh no. Like, yo, man, I don't like, I don't even know this song. Like, what are we talking about here? I didn't know I was supposed to fast forward it on vinyl to like the third minute, mm -hmm. you know? And so, but somehow like he liked me and I ended up doing more shows with him afterwards, <laughs> but it was a complete trade wreck. And I and like, we were both like out of our minds. So, so were you supposed uh, to like, just provide the instrumentals and he'd like rap over top of them or was, that, were you just like playing his songs? No, that's exactly what I was supposed to be doing. But A, I didn't know which song necessarily was next. Like it wasn't written down and B, they didn't, the DJ wasn't there. So they had to like scrounge together records of the track. So they weren't mm. even instrumentals. It was like the actual song. <laughs> so like if I played the wrong dude's verse, like that was a problem. So like for literally like one of the songs, I think he just like made the crowd like clap along while I played the wrong verse until his verse came on and stuff. <laughs> it was, it was a disaster. Yeah. Well, some, sometimes those are the best stories, which that one is very good. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm happy you were able to meet him and keep working with him. That's, that's good. I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was cool is that like at that company, I was running their magazine. It was called Frank. And because I met him, we were able to do a full Wu-Tang issue of the magazine and nice. kind of got to meet each and every guy and interview them and do sort of highlights. So, and dude, I was like the biggest Wu-Tang fan in the world, you know, just like every other suburban white kid uh, in the nineties. So it was like a dream come true that I got to meet all these guys just because of that random experience. Sure. Everything that happened in my life seems to be like some crazy random experience. Yeah. Life's a series of them, I guess, isn't it? It is. Um, so you mentioned a few times that you sort of eventually switched to production. What does that mean exactly? Like, are you cr actually creating the music that you're playing? Yeah. I mean, it was a trend later that producers became the biggest DJs, right? Like the David Geddes and all these Calvin Harris's who made mm -hmm. these huge songs. And then it's like, oh shit, I'm famous. I need to learn to DJ, right? So like the way they make their money is not on the song. It's going and doing shows and getting paid $150,000 a night to show up and press play on a pre-made set. But like mm -hmm. in my day to be a DJ, you had to like be really good at DJing because it was about the party and it wasn't about your production, but like it was a natural course of action for anyone to, and I was musical to mm -hmm. start making music. So like I had some friends that were already kind of, you know, successful and we started making beats for, you know, all these people. And I went through every like horrible thing you could possibly go through in the music industry where like I make a beat and someone would steal it and it would end up being a hit record and I didn't get mm -hmm. paid or like didn't get credit. And then I couldn't even talk about it because of like some legal contract, you know, mm -hmm. and all that stuff is really true. Um, and it's crazy, but like it ended up, you know, I ended up in the studio, like in these crazy, crazy situations. And then, you know, when I 
started the Melker project, which was sort of after just being myself, which was like kind of a girl talk style remix mashup thing. Mm-hmm. That was all like my own remixes and mashups of everything. So I produced that, you know, the entire thing, but it was all based on sampling and, and other people's music. But yeah, I was doing a lot of original stuff as well. It just never really got the credit for it. Sure. Interesting. And when you started out spinning, were you doing like techno house stuff or was it like... I was a rap dude. You know, oh, right um, so like, yeah, I started spinning hip hop in like uh, the mid to late nineties. And then I went through my trance and house and all that mm-hmm. phase in the early two thousands through a party called air trance in Philadelphia at a club called shampoo. And I graduated and it became this huge trance party and then air France <laughs> sued us for using their logo and the party <laughs> ended because <laughs> uh, we like use the plane, you know, air, sure. air trance. And, yeah, that'll do France. it. Yeah. So that, that kind of like ended that. And, but then I sort of like, um, I don't know, got out of like that scene and went sort of back to just like rap and mashup stuff. So I was always sort of, I mean, my calling card was that I was could play anything, you know, it was open format. I would be mixing classic rock with rap and EDM stuff and really, Mm -hmm. really sporadic 30 seconds of this song and three songs at once and 20 seconds of this other song. So it suited my like ADD very, very well. Sure. Um, That makes sense. So much fun, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense why you did sort of the girl talk remix stuff then too. It seems like a natural progression. I, I used to love girl talk. I listen to them all the time. Yeah, he's amazing. So my the concept of what I was doing was basically it was going to be girl talk, but with turntables, nice. you know, and it was the same girl talk wasn't famous yet, you know, mm-hmm. he only put out his first like thing. And so the mashup scene was very young and whatever. So I was kind of one of the first people and I was I've had it basically deconstructed so I could do the whole thing live. Very cool. Nice, man. So, uh, so you had this sort of interesting, famous DJ career, and now you're sort of a prominent member of the cryptocurrency community. So <laughs> how to, how'd that end up happening? Equally accidental. Um, so, you know, like, like many of us who had a lot of fun, we have kids and families and get old. I was too old, really, I felt like to be <laughs> DJing. You know, like Matthew McConaughey in uh, Days and Confused, he says, you know, they get older, I, or I get older, they stay the same age. Yep. That's how I felt. That's how I felt about DJing, right? Like sure. these, I was perpetually DJing for 21 year olds, no matter how old I was. <laughs> um, and so there was a point where that just became sort of morally unacceptable i think yeah and um, the hangover the hangovers are worse when <laughs> the older you get to that they? it's a, it's a huge huge part nobody tells you i know that like in your 20s you're invincible yeah and then you in your early 30s you, you start to feel it and then you turn 40 and you have one drink and you're and you can't function for six days <laughs> um and it's it's unbelievable and really sad but <laughs> It is what it is. So yeah, obviously, like I had sort of a life transition and I was looking for like what I was going to do next. And it happened to coincide with sort of finding crypto. And, you know, I loved trading. Um, And I just like it was late 2016, early 2017. And the timing was just luck, you know, like any of us, like I just bought some stuff and like, it went way up really fast. So I thought like anyone else, I was like, a trade god. (laughs) Right. Um, I wasn't. you know, and uh, so I had a Twitter following it to some extent from music, obviously. And I immediately just, I mean, I'm the type of person who just like, I tweet whatever is on my mind at all times, you've probably noticed. Um, and so I just started tweeting about crypto, 
you know, like I was like a fanboy in the crypto Twitter community. I was just started following all the big accounts and engaging with them. And, you know, I, and I was just like anyone else. And for whatever reason, like I started to get a following. It was never, there was never any plan. I didn't even know that like you could make sort of a life or whatever out of being a influencer on crypto Twitter. Like it, in a million years, I wouldn't have told you that that was a thing mm -hmm. or known. And so I just started getting more followers. And, you know, as that happened, like more opportunities sort of presented themselves. And, and uh, I got way more serious about trading. It did well. And it just sort of like snowballed from there. So I can't even say how it happened, but it, you know, it took a couple of years. Sure. Um, and I was just trying, honestly, man, I was just a guy on Twitter, like everyone else looking for some insight for trades. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, it's sort of a similar story to me. It sounds like we started in the crypto world about the same time. I think I bought my first Ethereum in like December 2016 uh, when I was, you know, 850. I'll just <laughs> say something. that's like eight bucks. I think, right. you know, I got in like, you know, 30, 40 bucks or something. But yeah. Right. What was, uh, what was the first crypto you bought? Do you remember? Bitcoin. Yeah. Oh, I mean, nice. it, it, like it was kind of big in the DJ community. Or at least like, I think that that's the kind of people who would have been more interested in it. And so sure. like one of my friends who was a DJ was super into it. He was like, you got to buy this thing. And I started looking into it. So I bought a little Bitcoin and then he was like, well, you got to get these ripples. Got to get these ripples. <laughs> oh. And, uh, and then you got to get the Ethereum's, you know, like mm -hmm. literally it was jargon. We had no idea. And so then I, you know, had to like transfer from, I was on Gemini, like transfer my Bitcoin to Bittrex. And then it was like, it might as well have been in Chinese, right? Because right. you're trading, you're trading in Bitcoin for the first time. You don't understand the relationship to the dollar. So, like everyone else, like I would see my dollar number even either even or going up, and was really excited. And then one day I realized that I had like lost half my Bitcoin just sitting in you know whatever. And I kind of went through the same crappy shit lessons that everybody else did. Mm -hmm. The up in um, USD. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's like, it's not a meme. It's right. real life, you know, like up in USD, down in Bitcoin. So, um, sure. and, uh, you know, and so, but I was just like, you know, man, it was the timing, sure. you know, like I, I literally started with like 3000 bucks and it was $20,000 like a week later. I know it's insane. And then I, you know, like took half of it out. And then that 10 grand was like a hundred grand a month later. You know, and I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just buying stuff people on Twitter told me to buy. Literally, mm -hmm. I was that guy, you know. Um, and so I just had lucky, lucky timing. And then, um, you know, I was lucky that I took at least enough profit to not want to off myself, you know, in 2017. <laughs> but I suffered like everyone else. But here we are, you know, a lot of conviction. Mm -hmm. And I took that opportunity. I found a mentor, my friend Chris Inks, who uh, Texas West Capital, and he really taught me how to like improve my trading and handle manage risk and my emotions and stuff. And then, you know, I was ready for when uh, things got better. Sure. Nice. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us just sort of lucked into timing in the 20, late 2016, early 2017 time. Yeah. I remember those two where it's like, all right, I'll buy Strat today and it's up 50%. I'll buy ENG. And like, they're all just see, like random tickers. I don't even right, know if I, half I those found, coins are still around. Yeah. I found Chris because like I followed him randomly on Twitter. He wasn't like a huge account or whatever, but he had Trig. Like he had this mm. called Trig and I bought it and it was up like 400% in a day. And so I hit him up. I was like, you're a genius. Mm -hmm. How'd you do that? He was like, well, I have a little group. And it's like, it was on Trello cards. He would send you trade ideas. But then I just kept harassing him and like basically made him teach me. 
Um, and you know, I, I got it, but it was completely pure, utter luck mm -hmm. yeah. at the beginning. Today's episode is sponsored by Radix. In the current financial system, transactions are slow, inefficient, and expensive. And even suppose a decentralized finance platforms, or DeFi for short, like Ethereum, were not designed to support the number and speed of transactions necessary to scale DeFi. Ethereum's solution for this is sharding, which results in scalability at the cost of composability. Radix is a new cutting-edge layer one platform for DeFi applications. Radix is specifically designed for DeFi, providing speed, security, and scalability. Radix uses its own next-generation consensus system called Cerberus, which has achieved over 1 million transactions per second in recent testing. Try doing that on Ethereum. Learn more at radixdlt.com. That's R-A-D-I-X-D-L-T.com. Listen, I've used a lot of exchanges over the years and all seem to have their problems, whether it's a lack of volume, bad or buggy UI, or the exchange crashing when Bitcoin makes a big move. Until now, that is. Femex is a new derivatives and spot exchange launched last November by a group of former Morgan Stanley execs. Femex sports lightning fast transactions, the ability to handle tons of transactions at once so you don't need to worry about it crashing during big moves, deep order books and real verified volume. They have several different trading pairs and leverage options. They also have low trading fees and a killer ref plan. Be sure to use this URL for my welcome bonus, www.femex.com slash a slash bully. Check it out. Thanks. Who said DeFi isn't for Bitcoiners? Discover BPRO, created by Money on Chain, that allows you to earn a rent on Bitcoin positions and gain free leverage. With MOC liquidity mining, BPRO holders also get money on chain rewards every single day. So yes, with a Bitcoin on steroids like BPRO, DeFi is definitely for Bitcoiners. Learn more about BPRO at moneyonchain.com slash Esquire. Again, that's moneyonchain.com slash E-S-Q-U-I-R-E. So now you have, a, you have a podcast, you have a newsletter with all of these educational resources, you have a YouTube channel. How, like, what, what was the first sort of foray and uh, I guess content creation on that side and what made you do it? Yeah, so I always felt that Twitter was too short form for like my thoughts, you know? Like I don't wanna write 19 tweet threads Mm -hmm. uh, while I'm like vomiting ideas onto paper. So I started the newsletter just over a year ago. It's crazy. It was 13 months ago, probably um, a free newsletter just because I wanted to share more thoughts, right? It was purely just a labor of love and something I wanted to do for myself and for entertainment. And then I realized I really enjoyed doing it, but also that it was a ton of work, mm -hmm. right? So I was putting out this free newsletter, but everybody was like, responding to it with questions and ideas. And it was like, oh, I now have a full-time job as a customer service agent for everybody who wants to know about crypto. <laughs> so, you know, at that point I was like, I'm just going to charge like 15 bucks a month, but I'll keep a free version. And then it started to just very rapidly become a meaningful business, you know, mm -hmm. which was not, like I said, was not what I expected. And so that has, you know, continued to build. I mean, the concept behind it really is it's just, 
what what it, the name is a newsletter, right? Mm -hmm. It's mostly news. It's mostly thoughts. I share a lot of educational resources. I have a lot of guests come on and write who are much smarter than me about you know specific topics, and then I just share all of like my own trades and everything that I'm looking at, you know, um, and uh, just you know as a totally as an educational thing. Like this is the way I'm looking at the chart. This is where I plan to buy this if it happens. Godspeed. So it's you know? mainly setups like trade yeah, setups. There, there's a few setups. It's mostly news. It's yeah. mostly writing. You know what I mean? And then the, the, the few charts and I always sort of review Bitcoin and, and it's every market, you know? And like I said, I have a lot of people now who will contribute or help because it's so much work. I do it every day, you know, every Monday through Friday, I write like what effectively like just a small magazine, you know? Um, and, uh, and you know, so just like getting into crypto Twitter, I guess it was just this sort of organic thing. It was never thought out. I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to start a business. I just thought, Hey, I, I want to write some more. I enjoy it. You know, and that's sort of how everything I've done has happened. The podcast was very similar. You know, Jason from Blockworks hit me up on Twitter. It was like, Hey, you got a good following. You seem personable. You want to do a podcast? I was like, not really. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not going to lie. I said, what the hell is a podcast? Really? Dude, I'm you such didn't, a, you I'm didn't such know what a, a podcast was? I knew what it was, but I'd never listened to one in my life. Right, I've still listened enough. to less than 10 podcasts in my life, um, including my own. Um, you know, and he was like, well, you know, the, here's the math. There's a lot of money to be made. He's like, and you'll basically just get to like talk to interesting people. And I said, okay, we'll give it a try. And I, yet again, like, I don't know what your experience has been, but I started and I just love doing it. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. doing a podcast is like going to college and getting paid instead of paying. It's really extraordinary. I mean, you just get to meet like the smartest people in their respective fields and just like hear their story and then get a bunch of alpha from them and then do it all over again. It's awesome. Yeah. And like, they wouldn't have answered my call before, you know, sure. and now they, they want to talk to you. So like you get these incredibly interesting people on a subject that you know, basically nothing about, and you just get to sit there and personally ask them questions and listen for an hour. So what could possibly be better than that? I would do that. I would pay to do that. Yeah. You know? Um, and so that has sort of evolved and that's like a, it's a roller coaster, as you know, like, you know, this, the, the advertisers are in, the advertisers are out, the numbers are up, the numbers are down. It's like a whole, I just, you know, I, I just bother with recording it and hoping for the best, which is kind of my approach. And then like, so then I just was like, this would be fun to do on YouTube because sometimes the podcast format is not, um, you know, it's not uh, time sensitive enough. Mm -hmm. right? You'll record a podcast and, and we'll be talking about Bitcoin price. And when I put the podcast out two weeks later, we look like complete idiots. Sure. sure. You know? So then I was like, I'm just going to start doing some live streams. I'll do some charts. And so that's been more fun for me now. And I've been kind of doing that, but yet again, it's all just like, I just do a bunch of stuff that I want to do. And somehow it's been evolving into streams of income. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, not many people can be like, I do this full time. Um, in addition to sort of trading and things. I know there's some, there's a lot of folks who do trading full time, but it seems like you've more shifted to almost like here's content creation full time yeah. in the crypto space, yeah. which is neat. Yeah. I mean, I was always creating music. I'm just, I love creating things, you mm -hmm. know, and when I guess this became an outlet when music was no longer an outlet. I mean, I haven't touched music in years. It's weird. It was my mm -hmm. whole life. And I just like, burned out, I guess, you know, just like sure. sort of became less interesting, but I love creating content, whether that's written or audio or whatever. It's just really, really fun for me. And I could never trade full time. 
whatever that means. I don't even know how people trade full time. It's, I, I like spend 10 minutes. I look at some charts and that's it. Like, what else am I going to do? Yeah. Watch. Yeah. It. No, I mean, and it's so stressful to be like day trading. I mean, I've tried to do that too, like to scalp margin and like, you'll, you'll pull your hair out doing that all day. I don't know how people do that all day. Yeah. For me, that would never be sustainable. It wouldn't fit in with my life, with my kids and my wife. And I don't want to be taking that sort of like stress out on them when I've lost a bunch of money or explain to them how I've lost a bunch of money, you know, but uh, a truism of trading that I found is like sort of the less trades you take and the less you do and the less effort you put into it, the more money you make. Yeah. No, it's funny. I went back. I actually went back. So we were talking earlier about our original entries. Like I said, I think I, you put in three grand. I think I put in about that, maybe five grand. My first buy was when I got into crypto. And I think if I would have just like held on to Ethereum for a couple of years and just like, you know, multi millions. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, if I would have, if I would have nailed the top, sold at 1400 or whatever it was, like I would have made so much more money than I did fucking around with altcoins, like, you know, getting scammed and rug pulled and, losing money on bad setups and stuff. But I guess maybe that's the cost of the education. <laughs> it's the, the it, it is. And, and the funny thing is that like my quote unquote normie friends in 2017, who I just told to buy Bitcoin did far better than almost anyone else I know. Mm -hmm. They just bought some and forgot about it. And they were like, this is crazy. I'm selling this. Like yeah. they weren't involved in it. They didn't care about it. Right. So there was no emotional attachment. They just bought some at like 3000 and sold it at like 15 or 16,000 and walked away. Yeah, you know, five times their money. I mean, traders very rarely beat the market. It's like mm -hmm. less than one or two percent of the time. It's 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 not good. And it's like, not only are you losing money, you're like putting in all your time and effort to do it. Yep. Yeah, and you're getting your ass kicked on cap gains. Like if you just hold it for two years and then get long term cap gains instead of the income treatment you get on short term. It's I mean, horrid. That's, this horrid. isn't tax advice, by the way, but um, you, you know, it, it tends to be a better better play to just hold it long term unless you're a really, really good trader. One of my close friends sent me the funniest email yesterday or two days ago. He was friends with Brian Armstrong years ago somehow. Mm -hmm. And in 2012, Brian Armstrong asked him to put $10,000 into Coinbase, like one of those, I guess, coming out of Y Combinator. And my friend was like, this is idiotic, like mm -hmm. stupid internet money. He was like, $10,000 is a lot of money to me. Uh, but he sent me an email that was literally like a string of nine expletives. <laughs> about the Coinbase IPO. He was like, I've done the calculations and my $10,000 would be $21 million at IPO. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and I mean, I think, isn't FTX running like those synthetic futures or whatever? And it's, I think it's trading at like 50 billion or some, yeah, something crazy. You got to get Sam on the show, dude. I had him on recently. He's like the most interesting story. And he talked about how they just, come up with these products and have them trading 20 minutes later. Yeah. Um, you can trade literally anything on FTX. It's so awesome. Um, I can't being American. But, right. Um, yeah. No, I know. I wish we could enjoy the do anything. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I, I do want to have Sam on We follow each other on Twitter. I I'm sort of curious about his views on sort of the U S regulatory space, because I'm sure he has some thoughts on that. But well, I think I mentioned to you actually separately that like we had a whole conversation about lawyers, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and <laughs> not, not as in a ne as negative a light as you would imagine, but I basically said like dealing with regulation in every country in the world and every state in the union, et cetera, and having to like navigate that you must have more lawyers than employees. And he was like, yeah, 
like basically, and it was like, and they just give you different opinions. Mm-hmm. So like I can ask 12 lawyers, 12 things, and I get 12 different answers. So how is that helping me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing I notice is like, it's such a new space and there's so much bleed over between different kind of areas and regulators and countries that it, it can be relatively hard to give consistent advice to new companies, especially, you know, a guy like Sam, who's like, okay, I want to launch Trump futures. Hey, lawyer, what do you think about that? And the lawyer's probably like, well, nothing like this exists. I mean, like, it's sort of gambling, it's sort of securities, it's sort of just like, people betting. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to give advice when the product you're trying to advise on has never been done before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, I don't think he was necessarily blaming the lawyers. I think mm-hmm. he's cognizant of the fact that it's just difficult. And I think he feels like if you make your best effort to be compliant, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to do? Wait until there's clarity in five years. Nobody, there would be nothing in crypto if everybody waited for the United States to say it was okay. Well, yeah. And then you get this interesting dynamic, like you're seeing with SEC right now. I mean, five, well, five minutes before the podcast started, the SEC announced that they're bringing charges against Ripple and its two co-founders for securities law violations. And, you know, if you would have asked me two weeks ago, if I thought that was likely, I would have said probably not given that they launched years and years ago. I know other lawyers would disagree with me, but you know, the SEC has said, well, Ethereum isn't a security because it's sufficiently decentralized. And I guess I haven't read the complaint that the SEC brought against Ripple, but I suppose that's the argument. But yeah, you're right. It's like, well, how do you how do you navigate that landscape when it seems to sort of change and evolve over time? And that's the trick about advising companies in this space too. Yep. Is like, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's so well, many Ripple jokes I want to make. <laughs> Like dad jokes, like, I wonder what the ripple effects of that will be. Oh boy. That is, or, that's that a dad is joke. crippling, <laughs> crippling. Yeah, no. There's, we're going to be making ripple jokes for years, but yeah, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. Is that it, it was impossible for them to, make, them to make a decision within the regulation that was presented. And now they're being punished for that mm-hmm. effectively. And, you know, you can have your thoughts on ripple or whatever, but ripple being deemed a security and then being made an example of is bad for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I I looked it up last night. They're the third largest market cap. I think they're at $22 billion in market cap, at least they were last night. And yeah. This morning, they're 373rd, I hate to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, by the time this comes out, it might be a different story. But um, well, that's that's interesting. I mean, one thing I was going to ask on sort of the, the newsletter side of things is, do you ever like run out of stuff to talk about? Because it seems like there's sort of a flurry of news in crypto and then it'll kind of die off. But maybe it, there's just enough going on now that there's always something to talk about. But five days a week just seems like a lot of content. I don't know. I, I never have trouble getting it out. I mean, there's always news if you're following 100 projects, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, I, sure. and I'm expected to do so. There's always something to talk about. And there's always like some painful lesson that I learned to impart, unfortunately, you know, like, it's always like, well, what dumb thing did I do as a trader? And I never stopped coming up with those somehow, 
you know, and so it's a lot of it is just sharing sort of those things. I mean, I like to talk about Michael Saylor like 900 times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you and everyone always, else, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's always coins to be watching and talking about. And there's so many new projects right now. It's like insane. So I try to keep up with that and, you know, give at least brief sort of TLDRs on the new projects that are coming out. I don't know. I, it is a lot. And sometimes there's just nothing profound or brilliant to say. Um, and I say that I've literally written introductions to the newsletter where I'm like, there's not that much to say today. So let's look at some Bitcoin charts, you know? Um, and I think that the people understand and Mm -hmm. listen, the thing is $15 a month, you get it like $20 a month. It's not like it's, you know, it's less than a dollar a day. I don't think I I kept it that way to keep the expectations Mm -hmm. somewhat low, you know, Hey, I'm going to take a day off on Christmas guys, you know? Um, and so I think that that's like totally fine and reasonable. And to be honest, man, so, you know, most of the people, 99% of them, I never hear from them, but then there's the 1% who are somewhat demanding, but you know, I like to try to help where I can. Sure. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Do you have any like, um, sort of tried and true tips you'd give folks who are interested in learning more about cryptocurrency or trading? I mean, when it comes to trading, I would say, learn the very extreme basics of technical analysis and completely move on because it's utterly irrelevant practically, which is weird from someone who shares like a thousand charts a day. But the the hardest lesson to learn obviously is how to control your emotions and to manage your risk. Right. And that's literally it. Like if you probably threw darts for entries, um, but you had an appropriately placed stop loss and your position size was right, you probably make money over time. It's like, and it's the, it's the, it's the biggest catch 22 of trading is that it's rationally so incredibly easy, but emotionally so incredibly hard. Yeah. Um, and we've all experienced it, right? You don't take profit when you plan to, cause it's going to go higher. Yeah. Never. Um, and you move your stop loss down cause it's going to bounce right when you, you know, it hits your stop, which sometimes it does by the way. But at the end of the day, you know, trading is a pursuit of decades and thousands of trades to gauge your success. But most people are overexposed and are fixated on every single trade they take. And if you're, it, it's, it is a truism, never, you know, invest more than you can afford to lose. Um, because the minute that it's too much money where you view it as like, oh shit, my rent is on the line or, oh shit, my kids like school payment is on the line. You're going to lose. And that's the situation that most people are in. Nobody wants to hear, hey, dude, you have $1,000. Don't risk more than 20 bucks on a trade. Mm-hmm. They want to hear my thousands going to be like we did right. <laughs> where we got lucky. Um, and I think honestly that getting lucky was amazing in some ways, but in many regards, you know, a lot of really famous traders, I had this conversation with Peter Brandt basically said, the worst thing that can happen to you is you do exceptionally well immediately. Yeah. Because then you think you're a genius and you give it all back. You know, um, the best thing you can do is like get chopped up a little bit, but not lose everything, but learn some valuable lessons. You know, because um, the market, man, it's it'll 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 abuse you. So I would say, like, as just the the main thing to focus on is managing your risk, and once you take a trade, stepping away and just letting it happen. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was Masayo on Twitter once said, like, if you if you're checking charts more than two to three times a day, like you're probably over leveraged and you're probably going to get crushed. And I think about that whenever I'm like opening my phone to look at a chart or something, cause I have a big position open. I'm like, all right, I need to sort of de-risk this. Cause like, I'm going to, I'm in too deep or like I care too much. And then that's when you start to make bad decisions. 
it's that's incredibly accurate right because like if you have the right amount uh on a trade you should be able to just like let your alarm tell you if you stopped out or if you won mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and that's the thing is the more you check it the more likely you are to make some emotional decision and you know exit it too early or move your stop loss or do one of those things because there's something in the price action that you believe you've seen but the reality is that when you took the trade was that was when you had the best insight into what you wanted to do yeah everything after that becomes emotional because you're now attached to what's happening and your money's actually on the line so when you make that sort of you know objective decision to enter in the first place that's when you were at your best yep Yep. Like every sort of trade should be kind of predetermined almost in your mind. Like, all right, that's my stop loss. That's my target. Yeah. And, and I always it. say, you know, people should plan. Yeah, I like to approach trades. I learned this from Chris, but to plan your losses, mm -hmm. never like plan the Lambo that you're going to buy with all the money you're going to make. Like your job as a trader is to lose less. Mm -hmm. So always just like approach every trade from the expectation that you're going to lose. And so how do I lose the least? You know, and then be really, really just like surprised and happy when it goes your way and be willing to wait until it hits your target. It sounds so easy. It's so hard. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Um, well, good. And, and, you know, I think you said you have some like educational resources on your website if people want to learn more about particular thoughts. Yeah. So like very often after I write something up in the newsletter, I'll either sort of expand upon it or decide that it's worthy of like you know, after the paid people have had time to consume it of sort of sharing it. So it'll just be, it's, it's very basic things, you know, like my favorite thing, obviously anyone who knows is trading divergences with RSI, you know, so I just kind of wrote a primer on trading RSI divergences and how to use those things like that, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, I mean, at the end of the day, the best, uh, education you're going to get is getting beat up by the market, sadly. Sure. And so, you know, you said you launched the podcast. It's obviously doing very well. How many, how many episodes have you done now? Did you say 80? I'm in the eighties. I couldn't even tell you, but you know, um, but it seems like I've done like five. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, no, they go you'll, quick. I mean, you'll see, but they go quick and then you start like hitting them three or four in a week and mm -hmm. you don't remember which ones have come out. You start to forget people that you talk to and every once in a while, one of them is just bad and you don't use it or, you know, like mm -hmm. just, it, it happens, but it just becomes, you become sort of a machine about it. And it's been a crazy evolution on the way that I approach doing them. I'm sure you'll see the same thing. And actually it's when I had Peter McCormick on that he uh, kind of changed my view on it because I used to like do a whole ton of prep. We still do. I mean, I have an assistant who does the prep, but, and then I would like be very rigid, I guess, about what I wanted to ask and stuff. And then mm -hmm. at some point, Peter was like, I got to a point where I just sort of showed up. You know, I know that I know this dude, I'm just going to talk to him. And I try to approach it that way, but that was very hard at first. And I think the content suffered, but I tried to do that. So now I've found a happy medium uh, sort of between the two, you know, yeah. I kind of have something in mind that I want to talk about something I'm really interested in and try to guide it that way. But um, dude, it's a work in progress. It's really, really hard. Uh, you do mm -hmm. a great job for how long you've been doing it. I think, um, I think, you know, you found your rhythm very quickly. I don't know that I did. Like I kind of cringe when I go back and listen to some of the first ones. So, um, you know, but it, it is, like I said, it's just so fun. Sure. Charlie Shrem told me last week, 
I called him and I was like, man, I'm, you know, I feel like maybe I'm in a little rut or there's something going on here. I need to change. He was like, every six months, you have to basically reevaluate why you're doing it and what mm-hmm. you want to get out of it. And he was like, and they say that, you know, there's no such thing as a failed podcast after 500 episodes. Mm. It was like, we just got to get to 500, man. <laughs> and he's like, right. he's at like 160 or something. So. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I know. Uh, it, it sort of reminds me of like the startup game, right? Like the the startups you look at that are really successful, every one of them went through a really tough patch, probably dozens of really tough patches, but they just kept fucking going. And I think that's, you know, I think uh, Bobby, Crypto Bobby had a tweet about this today. Like the, the most important thing you can do as a business owner or an entrepreneur or even just a content creator is just show up every day or show up and put the work in consistently and then good things tend to happen to people who are able to keep going. Yeah, that's that's how you get lucky, right? <laughs> right, right. And everybody says right. how lucky you were. And you're like, no, I've actually recorded like 7,000 episodes of this right. thing. And now all of a sudden people care. But yes, I got very lucky. Um, but I think that that's absolutely true. Like you're going to miss a lot of the time, you know, but mm-hmm. you, you, then every, I think at some point there may be, or I hope there's a tipping point where just enough people are listening and you've built you know, with each episode, there's two more people who are going to listen to your next one, you know, and if you compound that number over 500 episodes, you've got tens of thousands of people who want to engage with your content. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Do you have a, do you have like a favorite episode of yours so far after, after reflecting on 80? Yours. Um, <laughs> yes. Besides mine, of course. Obvi- of course. Obviously. obviously. Um, I mean, it would be hard to say anyone other than Michael Saylor. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I said like 200 words in 80 minutes. <laughs> and then, then he talked my ear off for like 40 more minutes nice. after we stopped recording, you know, and I didn't say anything. So, I mean, the, the man is just an absolute genius and a beast. And then honestly, like I just had Sam Bankman freed, as I said, but I found mm-hmm. that to be just a really incredible conversation. I mean, nice. the guy is just, you know, you kind of talk to some people that are just on another level. Yep. It's hard to put it into words how intelligent he is um and how many things he has going on i mean he was i think i don't know what he was doing while we were doing it but it was probably 7 30 in the morning his time mm-hmm. he was fully like i think typing emails the entire time he was talking <laughs> to me like the keyboards clicking the whole time but mm-hmm. never missed a beat in what he was saying it's incredible like he was fully typing and talking most of the time. I'm like, how can your brain be processing both of those things at that rate? Yeah. Um, so I, those are really probably uh, my favorites. You yeah. Know. And both um, those guys and- sort of busted onto the scene in such a big way in 2020 too. It's like, they're such big personalities and like both of them just like have sucked up the narrative in the crypto space, like almost all year. So it makes sense. Those guys would be fun, fun guests on the podcast. Bigly, man. They're super bigly. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. Well, good. Uh, how about uh, other stuff you're working on? Do you have any other projects in the in the mix? Uh, I have kids, man. Right, right. Yeah, those are big projects. Believe me. I, yeah, I. You know, I. I think I'm at. Uh, you know, about my limit with things that I can take on. It's very hard for me not to take on more because it seems like you know drowning in opportunity, so to speak, mm-hmm. but I'm really enjoying everything I'm doing. I think I have a nice rhythm and my life barring COVID and all the nonsense of 2020 is kind of crafted in a way that I'm really comfortable with it. And it's what I would have envisioned. Sure. Um, so like, I don't, I don't know what I would even start after this 
you know, um, I'm just enjoying the ride. Things are building. And, you know, if people get sick of me and stop engaging, then I'll uh, find something else to do with my time. Fair enough. So, you know, I, I was kind of curious. It's like, it's almost the end of the year here. Um, do you have any sort of thoughts on like the, what the biggest story of the year was from the crypto point of view? There's, there's been a lot. <laughs> I was sort of going back and thinking about all the things that have happened this year in the crypto space and I guess the world at large, but do you have one thing that sort of sticks out in your mind as like the, the number one thing from the crypto point of view? Uh, <clears throat> there's two, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, one I would say is March 12th. Um, you know, when, uh, Bitcoin dove below 4,000 and largely because of liquidations on BitMEX and mm -hmm. sort of saw that nonsense because that was the day I feel like Bitcoin was finally like faced the final boss. You know, it was like sort of the ultimate test. It was dead. It was going to zero. And here we are in our 20,000. So I think that that day was the final test for the narrative of could it go to zero because it can't, mm -hmm. you know, that's not, that's not the future of it now. Very yeah. confident. And then that day I felt, oh shit, maybe I'm completely wrong. And I would say number two, it has to be not to like bring up Michael Saylor again, but micro strategy. Yeah. I think I absolutely think he opened the floodgates to make um, you know, Bitcoin fashionable and acceptable for big money and somebody had to do it and he's the first one. And I think that now the narrative moving forward, at least for now is institutional money and you know, how big can this get? How much will they expose? Because that money is not looking to sell, you know? So it really changes the dynamic of the market in my mind. Um, you know, MicroStrategy doesn't buy billions of dollars in Bitcoin so that they can like scalp a thousand dollar move. Right. So that, that, that Bitcoin is off the market, mm -hmm. you know? So to me, that institutional level adoption where they're buying it because it's a real store of value or a hedge against inflation means that, you know, we'll, we will see a supply side shock, I believe. I think, I believe we are. Yeah. And I mean, you see, you're seeing it too with like the PayPal stuff and Paxos. I mean, I think pursuant to New York law, PayPal and Paxos, their Paxos does all the custody for PayPal's crypto products and they have to hold it at like a one-to-one -one ratio. So if you yeah, buy it back to the gold standard, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I've, I've said it on a few episodes now and I agree with you that I think there could be some sort of liquidity crisis on the sell side of Bitcoin. And that's probably what you're seeing drive the price so fast, so quick. It's like, okay, sailor wants to buy 650 damn million dollars worth of Bitcoin. It's like, well, and by the way, he wanted somewhere. to buy. Yeah, and by the way, he wanted to buy four hundred and fifty million. Right, right. Right. And people gave him six hundred and fifty million to do it, and he's now bought that six hundred and fifty million worth. I mean, that moves the price, you know. And that that is our narrative now. And listen, that may not be what Bitcoin maximalists want the narrative to be. Mm -hmm. You know, that may be sort of counter the community to some degree, but it certainly makes the number go up. Yeah, and I I struggle with that too as someone who's been around for a while and like who's heard the narrative a lot over the years, you know, like we are building something special, something different, something decentralized where people are important in the process and that gives sort of power back to the broader people. And then you're like, oh, well, never mind. A bunch of publicly traded corporations came in and bought all of it. And it's like, well, is that really like, is that what, what Satoshi would have wanted? Is that like sort of the vision no, of what Bitcoin should have been? I don't know. No, yeah, I, I think I'd I agree with you. So. That probably isn't, but 
like you it's said, really who cares? Nice number number, number goes up. up. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Everybody is getting hilariously rich and you're not, right? Yeah. yeah. So no, I know. And like it brings it, like it just has such awesome secondary effects too, because then all the VCs are like, well, holy shit, Bitcoin's up. That means like there's lots of opportunity. So then VCs start dumping money into like you know, interesting projects and then projects take off and, you know, yeah, more people snowball. come to the space. Yeah, it's great. It's great for the space, but I don't know. And you but know, that's you, why we have privacy coins like yours, <laughs> right? There still can be projects that, uh, you know, sort of maintain the original vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope so. I, it, it is interesting too, to think about, I guess, um, your first point. Now I lost my train of thought. What was your first point on the biggest story of the year? It was, was the BitMEX, yes, the, like the, the right. March 12th crash. You know, so yeah, that think, day. thinking about Bitcoin at 4000 well, $3,800, less than eight months ago, it's like, are we Insane. going too fast? Like, is it just another 2017 or is this more organic? Is it long-term? Is it sustainable? I mean, there's differences because there's no retail and all that, but I don't know. I mean, it, it almost seems like we're just setting ourselves up for another bubble, but maybe not. Maybe this is a, maybe it's different this time. <laughs> yeah. I, it's the most dangerous words in investing, right? This right. time it's different, but I do think this time it's different. Right I, I think it, the signs are all over the wall. We have a floor now, you know, these companies provide a floor. It's kind of like uh, the fed and the stock market mm-hmm. before, before it was just like the hodlers were sort of the floor and they had to never give up, you know, for, for, uh, for Bitcoin not to go to zero. But now mm-hmm. when you have, you know, billions of dollars there, that's not going to sell unless there was a real crash. It's just not going to, ha- I just don't see it happening in the same way. Not yet. Sure. Unless, I mean, and then you look at like the broader economic trends, like, you know, we're, we're basically under a second lockdown, a new administration's coming on that may raise taxes. So, you know, you never know what'll happen on the stock market side. And then will we'll build, will Bitcoin follow it again? Like it did in March or is, is this time different? Is it a store of value now? So there's all yeah. of these sort of interesting macro questions that are just lingering out there. Yeah. Well, technically Bitcoin led it in March. It crashed right. first. Right. Um, so yeah, about 11 days before, um, <clears throat> as far as the bottom, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I mean, all of those narratives make sense, but like the, the stock market's not up from, you know, six times mm-hmm. <clears throat> from the bottom, you know, so it's, it's, it's not the same. They, 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 they may be rhyme, but I don't think it's the same, same, same poem. So I yeah. just, uh, I, I'm very bullish, very optimistic. And I think that uh, this run is kind of just beginning. Good. Well, I hope you're right, Scott. And uh, when I have 80 episodes, I'm going to come back and listen to this one and see if... Uh... <laughs> history plays out in your favor you're gonna cringe dude you blew it (laughs) (laughs) probably awesome man well hey thanks a lot um so where where can people find you remind remind everyone of your website and your twitter handle just find me at at scott melker on twitter and everything else is linked to that link to there the wolf of all streets dot io i had to give it the dot io so i would sound like techie sure yeah dot io is very hip you have to use dot io now yeah (laughs) yeah Yep. Well, cool, Scott. Hey, I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thanks for your time. And yeah, look forward to seeing what, what 2021 brings. Thank you so much. We can do the, uh, the uh, guest ping pong. So I'll have you on in another six months and then we'll go back and forth indefinitely. Sounds good. All right. Well, we'll chat. Thanks, then. brother. See ya. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes go live every Wednesday, at 7 a.m. Eastern. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter 
at Bully ESQ to continue the conversation. See you next week.